Turn your, in your Bibles to the prophecy of Hosea as we continue um, in this uh, series, reminding you that next Lord's Day morning I will uh, take up Hosea 5 um, before turning our attention uh, to the series on the glory of Christ, which will be primarily in the morning worship service, uh, continuing in Hosea in the evening. Uh, but Hosea chapter 4, I'll read the entirety of this chapter. As I've already prayed and mentioned already, it is a relatively dark chapter in the, in the prophecy. It is the, the, the indictments of Jehovah, as the title of the sermon clearly states, but it is indeed that. It is uh, the charges that God lays against his covenant people, but it is not charges that does not have hope there somewhere. It's there. I'm going to show it to you in just a few minutes. Hosea chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Hosea 4, beginning with verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let, no, let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also Forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery." I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. <clears throat> For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. There can be no doubt, and there is really no doubt, that discipline is hard. At least it can be most of the time. Children, of course, and I remember fondly the numerous times, and there were many, uh, in which I was disciplined by my parents. You probably don't like it. You probably resist it. You probably are not fond of it. You tend to see it, I suspect, in a very negative way. There's not much fun in being deprived of some benefit or privilege due to your misbehavior. Yet your parents discipline you, telling you what you did wrong, not to harm you, but to help you learn that you might modify your behavior and grow as a God-fearing adult. But God does the same thing for his children in the church. He disciplines his own 
And the people of Israel, as here in this prophecy of Hosea, they are his. They belong to him. We have noted that already multiple times already leading up to this, this severe indictment that God gives in this chapter. We've already taken note of the fact that he has called them his own. He has said that he would labor. He would do all that is necessary to claim them, to hold on to them, to not lose them. And part of that, doing what is necessary, is discipline. And here, as he begins that process and to show forth that process in this fourth chapter, he begins to give to them the things that have upset him, putting it mildly. Things that have offended him. The ways in which his covenant people have sinned and sinned egregiously against the God of heaven. They are indeed wayward. You can't read the words of chapter 4 and think that there's something really good in what the, they're doing and, and how they're behaving. They are wayward people, very wayward people. But they are his people. They belong to him, much in the same way you parents may have a wayward child. But he's, they're still your child. He or she, or he or, and she or, or she are, are yours. They belong to you. And it's likely you'll do whatever is necessary for them. Well, the God of heaven does that for his children. He loves them, though they are not behaving very well. He is faithful to them, though they are faithless to him. Now, when you think of discipline, the discipline of the Lord particularly, what comes to mind? What kind of reaction do you have emotionally, mentally, intellectually? How, how do you respond to those times in which you know it is clear that the Lord is disciplining you for one reason or another? I don't need to sit and read Hebrews chapter 12 to you. You know the words of that chapter in which the writer to the Hebrews or the preacher as it is says to not despise the discipline of the Lord. It's a good thing because it proves you belong to him. You are his children. You are his child. But, of course, sometimes we respond. Sometimes we don't respond very well, but sometimes we do. How do you respond? Do you respond? Do you know? Do you understand that it is through those times that you are being perfected as his people? This is what God is committed to doing. To conform you more and more to the image of Christ. Just like he's going to do with these people here in the days of Hosea. He does that for us in the church. He's perfecting us even in our times of behavior that is somewhat wayward from that which he has told us to do. Even the Savior himself learned through the things that he suffered. It isn't that he was disciplined so much, but that he did suffer the very wrath of God. We too will often face the very discipline of our Father. Discipline is hard. Nobody is saying it's simple, it's easy. It is oftentimes difficult, it is oftentimes hard. It is hard to hear from a father about sin and misbehavior. But brothers and sisters, this is no ordinary father. This is not some, some fallible father who makes mistakes and blunders and sometimes misunderstands and doesn't know all the facts and doesn't know all the circumstances. This is the father of heaven. This is your heavenly father. And he knows exactly, absolutely, with precision, how to reclaim his wayward children. Now, the context of chapter 4, of course, it falls right after chapter 3. I know that doesn't take a whole lot of theological training to ascertain that fact. But it is vitally important to keep chapter 3 in front of you as we deal with chapter 4. Because in chapter 3, we have that living picture, as we saw last week, that living picture of the labor and work that the Father in heaven, God himself, is going to do for his wayward bride. And what is that? He's going to woo her. He's going to redeem her. He's going to buy her back. He is going to be patient with her, and he is going to bring her into his own, and he's going to hold on to her. That's what he's going to do. But until he can, he needs to deal with their sin. He needs to cleanse them. He needs to purify them from their behavior, and it's bad behavior. It's awful behavior. It's sinful behavior. It's the sinful behavior, the height of sinful behavior, as articulated in chapter 4, and then moving even in uh, to chapter 5. And so this evening we get, as it were, uh, an insider's view into the courtroom of God 
in which he sets forth the indictment against his covenant people. He does, as it were, the very thing that he has commanded his people of old to do when it comes to to cases of trial and accusation. He brings to bear the evidence against his covenant people that he might then take from that and show them his covenant love to restore them to himself. And so I want to show you the indictments of Jehovah this evening, those indictments against his covenant people. But as I do, I also want to show you the antithesis to all of them. It's in this chapter. It's subtle. It struck me, frankly, as I was working through it. It just sort of hit me. But there is an antithesis here. And that antithesis, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The solution to the indictments that come to the covenant people is not them going out and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and being better. The solution is rooted in the antithesis of all of these charges that are set forth in this fourth chapter of Hosea. Two points as we consider it together. The first point is relatively short. It takes up one verse. There must be a theme today about that. But... First, we'll consider the importance of hearing from Jehovah. There's actually three points, excuse me. The importance of hearing from Jehovah. That's verse 1. Second, the indictments of Jehovah. That's the bulk of the chapter itself. And then, as I have already stated, the hope of Jehovah really embedded in one verse. And then taking from that verse a summary of the chapter and applying it to the only hope that wayward people will ever have, and that is Christ uh, himself. Let's first consider the importance of hearing from Jehovah. This should not take a whole lot of time, but it's there, right there in the opening words of the fourth chapter. It's a little difficult, isn't it, children, if your parents are disciplining you, if you are not listening? What will happen if you continue to persist in not listening? Well, it's going to get worse, isn't it? That discipline will probably not relent, It will probably get worse because you fail to heed the instructions of your parents. It's no different for the God of heaven. He says, he appeals to the pen of Hosea. There in that first verse, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Hear. Now, when I was a boy growing up, and I've used this illustration, I think, in the past, but when I was a boy growing up, my father would often ask me, did you hear what I said to you? And I would say, of course, in some snarky way, probably, yes, Dad, I heard you. I got ears, you know. (laughs) Which probably got me in more trouble than I was already in. But then he would quickly say, but are you listening? We know the difference, don't we? I can hear, you can hear tonight, you hear my voice, but are you listening? The people of Israel, they need to hear. They need to labor to hear the very word of the Lord in such a way that it goes beyond just the eardrums moving, but it actually sinks into the the brain and the heart and the mind, all of it, that they might turn away from the charges that they are about to hear from God himself. Each week you have that privilege, you have it right now, to hear the very word of the Lord through the preaching of it, through the proclamation of it. In God's eternal wisdom, he gives, to, he gives um, to ministers the responsibility to preach the word. He gave to the prophets the responsibility to preach the word. This is what Hosea is doing here. He is proclaiming, thus saith the Lord, to the people. He is speaking. In chapter, at the end of chapter 2, into chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, the Lord was doing all the writing. The God of heaven. Now Hosea is talking. He is preaching. He is proclaiming. Each week, ministers have that that awesome responsibility to preach the word, to reprove, exhort, encourage, edify, all of it, to equip the saints with the work of ministry. The primary means of grace is designed to equip you as you walk the Christian life. Are you listening? That labor is done uh, through those called by God, equipped by the Lord, to do what I am doing right now. Two aspects to that labor that occurs, that it might be done well, 
is given to us in that passage we heard read by one of our ruling elders this morning in Acts chapter 6, the commitment to prayer and the study and ministry of the Word of God. That is my function. That is my primary responsibility to you in the church. Yes, there's lots of other things I do. You know that. But those are my primary things. That I might labor to preach that you might hear the word of God. But the source of that which you are to hear, notice as the text tells us, is not my words. But it's the words of the Lord. You don't need to listen to me when I start talking about things that have nothing to do with the Bible or supporting the text of the Bible or expositing on the truths of the Bible. If I go off the deep end and start saying silly things, dumb things that have nothing to do with Scripture and the the text before you, well, stop listening. Hosea appeals to the people. He says, hear the word of the Lord. The source of hearing is not man. That source is the very word of God itself. It's not some prophet or king even so much as Hosea needs to be heard, of course. But what he wants them to hear is not his voice, his word. He wants them to hear the word of God. The voice of God. Their loving father who comes into their bedroom and says, okay, Johnny, okay, Susie, you've been a bad, bad boy, and you've been a bad, bad girl, here's why. But I'm going to love you anyway because I do love you. That's why I'm doing this, because I love you. You need to hear this. The prophet is preaching. And and I grant you these words in this chapter, they're, they're not all that comforting. They're difficult. They're hard. The accusations, and and they're not just mere accusations. These are facts because they come from the God of heaven. They can be no other. They are very dark and awful. And you might even be tempted to think, what a bunch of yahoos. Why would they do all this stuff? Well, you know, don't get so quick and high and mighty because we do these things too. I'm going to show you that in a minute. These are the words of the Lord, not comforting so much, but you must remember that the Lord disciplines those he loves. These words are not offered without context. They're not just dropped here. There's a context that surrounds, the context is the the book itself. That context that has been already articulated multiple times in this book, it is that faithful love to an unfaithful people. This is part of it. Part of that faithful love is for the prophet through the very word of God, to tell the people of God they're sinning. You're behaving badly. Now sometimes ministers of the gospel, they have to do that. They have to stand in this place and they have to proclaim to the people of God that their behavior is not good. It's not fun. I doubt seriously Hosea was getting... Uh, getting all excited about this concept. People aren't going to like me very much, you know, Lord, after I tell these people how rotten they are. I don't think God was interested in that part. No, no, you're my prophet. Preach my word. Tell them. They need to know. They need to know. This is part of my covenant love to them. Therefore, we... Today, this evening, even, we must hear the word of the Lord in order to be corrected and chastened at times because we do go astray from time to time. We need to hear what the word of God tells us because it is a light to our path. It is designed to correct us. We have to have the light of the word of God in order to follow the path that is before us. And of course, we know those words that the Apostle Paul gives to us in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, and verses 16 and 17. All Scripture, every sermon, all Scripture is breathed out. It's inspired of God, whatever translation you may be using. It's profitable for teaching. We like that part. For reproof, well, not so much that. Thank you. Don't tell me I'm doing something wrong. Correction? Uh Uh-uh. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This, in this chapter, is the word of God. And so we must heed the prophet's demand. Hear. We must listen. 
A failure to listen is the determination to fail. We must heed and hear, hear and heed the words of the living God. Okay, so then what is it that we are to hear from this chapter? The indictment says, laid out by the prophet, really from Jehovah himself, through the prophet, into the ears and minds, hearts of his covenant people. I've categorized these in a way that I think is helpful. I am not going to deal with every pedantic word. You know to the chapter is one giant poetical expression. Every single word in this chapter is arranged poetically, which means there's a lot of language of figurative elements, and I've sought to categorize them in such a way that is helpful to summarize and synthesize the functionally important indictments that God lays out here for his people. First, he has an indictment against the people. We note that there right away in verse 1, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. The people. People like you, people like me, he's got a, he's got a problem. And then they are, they're as plain as the nose on your face, the problems he's got. He tells them three things, actually. Three accusations. First, there's no faithfulness. It's right there. No faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful? It means to be true to your word and to your responsibilities. It is the opposite image presented in chapter 2 and verse 20, in which God himself, the antithesis, the perfect faithful one, says to these wayward people, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. That is the work that he will do. He will do in a way that is good and right, according to his own covenant promises that he has made. He will not deviate from them, but the covenant people they have. They have departed from the word of the Lord. They have departed from the commands of the Lord. They have, in a word, they have been faithless to their God. In much the same way as the imagery has already been unfolded and unfolds again in these indictments in this chapter, they have been adulterers. They have been unfaithful to their husband. And so God accuses them of being unfaithful. There's no faithfulness in the land. Second, he accuses them of no love. Notice these are all in the negative. No love. Or steadfastness, in some translation, is a term of marriage. Here it is put in the negative. The terms of the covenant have been violated. It's a love that includes genuine affection for the husband, the God of heaven. But that's not what they love anymore. You note throughout this chapter, and earlier even preceding chapter 4, their love is not for the God of heaven, the true God, the living God. Their, their love is for sticks. It's there. They put their hope and their, and their trust in, in walking staffs. They inquire of a piece of wood, verse 12. I mean, how wayward can they be? Picking up a stick and talking to it like it's some god that's going to help them. It's actually, this is where they are. This is how abominable their behavior has become. They have lost their true love. Even as the, the angel to the church at Ephesus says, you have forgotten your first love. They have forgotten their first love. The one that has redeemed them, that has bought them, that has rescued them, that has protected them for hundreds of years. They've abandoned it. Much like a bride would walk away from her loving husband or a husband would walk away from his loving wife. This is what they have done. They may be checking all the boxes. They may be doing all the necessary things as religious people but they don't love the God of heaven. That happens all the time in the church, sadly. People come through the door. They sit in the same place every week. That's how I do attendance, by the way. So don't sit in a different place and confuse me. They follow all the rituals. They sing the hymns. They know the creeds. There's no love for God. They go out and they appeal to sticks and walking staffs and what I, pick something. Their love for God has grown cold. 
It's bankrupt, missing. This is what's happened. Their love is gone. Their faithfulness is no more. And they have no knowledge. The third accusation. This is not knowledge of books. This is not knowledge that says I can, I can quote the shorter catechism. This is not knowledge of being able to uh, articulate the, the intricate uh, ideas of the order salutis. Or be able to outline the book of Romans. This is experiential knowledge. This is a life lived and practiced as one who would know the true God of heaven and love him and be faithful to him, would then live for him and do all that he has said. It's not the kind of knowledge that would get you through some theology exam. It is experiential. It's practical. It is a knowledge lived in practical ways. It is a knowledge that understands the rights of another to make moral demands on those that he has redeemed. And they have no knowledge. They may know things. They may know the Torah, the law, but they don't know it because they don't live it. Three accusations given here in that first opening words, first verse. You might think we're never going to get through this chapter. We're going to be here all night. And that's going to speed up starting right now. What are the results of a people that are so indicted in this way? Remember, these indictments come from the God of heaven, so they're absolutely true. There is no possibility of it being wrong. No witnesses came to the stand. No jury sitting in a box. No grand jury. One judge who knows all things. You are faithless. You have no love for me. You have no knowledge of me. What are the results of such a people that behave in this way? We'll put in simply one word, chaos. Absolute, without question, chaos. It's given to us there, verse 2, in these very pointed language. He goes on to say, because of these things, there's swearing, there's lying. But I love God, but you lie. There's murder. And that is to say all kinds of murder, all forms of murder. That is to say the taking of life, but also the murder of anger against a brother and all that we can articulate through our wonderful exposition in the larger catechism. Stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, as a result of no knowledge, no love, no faith, faithfulness, the land mourns. They might be happy, but the land mourns nonetheless. The misery that comes from godless people and all who dwell in it, they, they languish. Even the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, even the fish of the sea are taken away. There is nothing but chaos in the land because the people have rejected their God. They have walked away from him. They have turned aside. Now, this can be easily applied in two different ways. I'll save the church for last, first, second, or first. Look at our world and ask yourself, why is it in such a mess? Because the people that God made don't love him. They're not faithful, of course. They have no knowledge of him. They live according to their own desires and appetites and as a result we have a big fat mess what do we have we have swearing lying murder stealing committing adultery and a host of other things it is chaotic the land is in chaos we are in chaos reject the god of heaven the true god and that is what you will get every time but sadly it happens in the church too That people who are the covenant people who come into the doors of the church and, but they don't love God. They're not faithful to Him. 
There's no experiential knowledge of him. What happens? Their lives are a mess. Chaos reigns in their homes. It bleeds into the life of the church and causes trouble there. Nothing good ever comes from turning away from the living and true God. Well, the indictment to the people, that's pretty bad. It gets worse because God then zeroes in in verses 4 through 9, not so much on the people anymore, but on the leaders. He's not leaving any stone untouched in this chapter. He's dealt with the people. Here's your issue. This is the problems that have been created because of your rejection of me. But you leaders, you, you people, who ought to know better. Look what he says, verse 4. Yet let no one contend, let no one accuse, for you, for with you is my contention, O priest. The object of the indictment of the Lord here is, of course, the priests, the ones that were charged with the responsibility of leading the people of Israel. Why does Jehovah turn his attention to these people as the main source of his accusation? It was the the duty of the priests to administer sacrifices at the temple, the place of worship. It was their duty to feed the people with the knowledge of God, yet they are accused of sin. They're not merely accused of it, of course. They are guilty of it. The indictment of Jehovah comes to bear on them. What are the indictments that they experience. Well, there is one main summary indictment. It's one of the worst things that a leader can be. They can be a lot of bad things, but this one's pretty bad. There in verse 6, we note that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also, I also will forget your children. Putting it a different way, they are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. They preach, but they don't practice. Sound like anybody Jesus knew? They knew the law. They could teach the law. They could explain the law. They could stand and preach 45-minute sermons about the law. They didn't practice it. Their people perish for lack of knowledge. It was the blind leading the blind. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because there was the, they were like sheep without a shepherd because the shepherds weren't doing the job of a shepherd. The priests of Hosea's day were a bunch of hypocrites. One commentator, he puts it this way when he says, Hosea is saying to the priest, don't accuse other people because you are no different. You want to accuse them of sin? You want to accuse them of doing things that they should not do? You're no different than they are. In fact, it's worse for you because you ought to know better. Hosea's message to the religious people of his day is echoed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, probably the most abused passage in the entire Bible. And it probably is. Of course, I know that's a subjective opinion. You may have a different one. However, you'll understand in a minute. You should know now. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. What do we read? What does Jesus say? Judge not that you be not judged. You've heard this, right? You can't judge me. Yes, I know. I can't judge you because you use this verse and basically tell me, leave me alone so I can sin in peace. I get it. It's not what this means. What does it mean? Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You want someone who performs surgery on you uh, like this? No, of course not. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. This is the key word in this passage. You hypocrite. First, take that that stinking log out of your own eye, that big old beam that's sticking right out of your face, Take that out. Then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus saying? 
Don't be running around judging other people when you're doing the exact same thing. Don't be causing, telling people they're living in sin when you're living in sin. You're doing the exact same thing. This is what the priests were doing in Hosea's day. Oh, you sinners, you bad people. But they're doing the same thing. They're blind guides leading blind people. Nothing more repugnant in the nostrils of the Savior, nothing more repugnant in the nostrils of God than a hypocrite who doesn't do what they preach, doesn't do what they say. So the priests, they're doing their function, but they're not living their function at all. But there are some specific indictments as well. Again, in verse 6, there's a failure to teach. My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. You've rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest. They're not teaching the people. They're not, as it were, preaching the word. One of the duties of the priest, as you may know, is to teach the people of God his law. That was one of their functions. We, we tend to forget that. We, we typically run to the function of standing at the tabernacle and administering uh, the work and labors of the, of the altar there and, and, and working in the holy place and then the high priest and the most holy place. We, we, we got that, but we tend to forget that one of their other functions was to proclaim the law of God to the people to teach them. And because of this failure, the nation had wandered into corruption Specifically, idolatry. If you turn back to Deuteronomy 31, it's always amazing to me how the minor prophets, any prophet, how they always seem to appeal back to one of the books of the Pentateuch. Foundational books of the Bible. Take those out and you're going to have a hard time with a lot of the Bible. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and I'll eventually get there. I do know where it is. It's in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13. Here, really much at the very end of the life of Moses, Joshua is about to be commissioned as the leader of Israel. We read there, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 31, that Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priest, the son of Levi. Note that. He gave it to the priest, the son of Levi who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years or at the set time in the year of release at the Feast of Booze, when all the Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns that you may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Turn over two more pages, maybe three in your Bible, maybe four, maybe five, so I can't count. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings, offerings on your altar. Who is the they? Well, you have to back up a few verses to verse 8. And of Levi, he said, the tribe of Levi, the priests of God, their responsibility was to teach the law of God to the people of God. They were not doing this. It's a no wonder the people were perishing because they were not given the very instructions of God. God is especially angry with them. The leaders of the church, specifically the God-ordained men, are to teach the people. This is what we are to do. Elders, Specifically, pastors are to preach the word of God to the people. That is their job. That is their calling. That is their responsibility. The people of Providence will perish for lack of knowledge if someone who stands in this pulpit does not give it to you. This is the God-ordained means by which he hems in and helps his church. The priests... 
they weren't doing it. What are we to teach? Well, we are to teach you the full counsel of God, to teach the word of God. Therefore, those men, they must be men of the word of God. They must know it by studying it, that they might proclaim it to the people of God. This was not happening. I can't think of another thing. There's others. I guess I can if I thought about it long enough. That it would be such an affront to a holy God. Here he gives his word to his people, and it's not being proclaimed. It's not being used. It's not being taught. It's not being preached to the people of God. Really, I, I, I say this to my wife all the time. If all I had to do was preach, the job would be easy. Preach the word. Study. Proclaim it. It's not rocket science. But the priests, apparently, they had other things to do. They weren't doing this. They weren't teaching God's word. Second, in really egregious indictment, they had no sense of the mourning of sin. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. They failed to mourn sin. Where do I get that from? Verse 8. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. Instead of it breaking their heart when the people sin, they're glad. What, how does this verse teach that? Well, one of the duties of the priest, not only to teach the word, proclaim the law of God to the people, is to function as mediators at the tabernacle. Instead of mourning sin, they relish the sin of the people. Why? Why did they do that? Because the priest would have more to eat. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 26, you note that a portion of the sacrifice that was offered at the altar was designated or dedicated to the very priest himself. Therefore, the more sin, the more food. Their God was their belly. They didn't care about the sin of the people and how offensive it was to the God that they were supposedly serving. They were glad when the people fell. They were glad when the people wandered into all sorts of abominations. They didn't mourn the tragedy of sin. Gloating over the sin of people is a wicked sin. Instead of gloating and allowing it to be an occasion for pride, leaders in the church should grieve deeply the sin of the church members. Frankly, it should keep you up at night. I know you think I'm crazy. Well, no, I'm not. Regardless of what you might think, I'm not crazy. Sin is awful. It wrecks homes. It wrecks families. It wrecks churches. It wrecks, it's wrecked the world. It's brought disease and misery into this place. People we love are struggling with illness because of sin. We should grieve it. We should weep over the sins of the people. We should plead with the God of heaven to relieve us of those things. How often do we gloat? It's a punchline, a joke. The priests aren't, they're not grieving. They're glad. More food from our refrigerator. Yippee. More steak and potatoes or whatever else. God is angry with them. Because they're not mourning sin. So not only are they failing to teach, they fail to mourn sin. They fail to be godly examples, verse 9. And it should be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. The way they are will then result in the ones that come behind them to be just like they are. And that cycle just keeps on going going because they are not godly examples before the people. 
like people like priests. They are the kinds of people that would say, as my father sometimes would say to me, do as I say, not as I do. Terrible advice, by the way. Love my dad, but it's terrible advice. This is what is going on in the nation. But it goes on in the church, too. Ungodly examples in the leadership of the church leads to ungodly people and behavior among the people. I don't have time to even get into some of the examples that I can give to you just extemporaneously of that very thing. Some recent that have come forward in the church, not here, another church. A well-known church. Bad examples leading to bad behavior and the cycle just kept on going for 10 whole years. And the damage in the wake of it all. The priests are those that are running around. Dad, do as I say, not as I do. I'm the priest after all. Look at me. Terrible examples. The charge to us as elders in the church, as leaders in the church, those of you who are seeking to be leaders in the church is to, church is to recognize the, the extreme importance of being a godly example. I didn't say perfect. You're not going to be that. I'm not going to be that. Godly, pursuing, the godly, pursuing godliness and righteousness and holiness, put a different way, pursuing the love of God, being faithful to God, and living that knowledge that you have in a practical, normal, everyday life. Well, just like the results of the people, there are dreadful results because of these horrible priests. There's misplaced hope. Their hearts are turned to idols that they think will rescue them and save them. We see this in verses 12 and 13 as well as in verses 17 and 19. Because of the lack of knowledge, because of the poor examples, because of the failure of the priests, the hearts of the people are turned to idols that they think will rescue them and save them. Their hearts are turned because of a lack of knowledge and they have misguided trust in things that will never, ever satisfy them. What can a stick do? One commentator humorously states on this particular point, he says, they ask for a piece of wood, they ask from a piece of wood advice. Now, who's going to do that? Anybody in this room going to do that tonight? You go home, talk to a piece of wood and ask for advice? He's not going to talk back. This is what they're doing. How bad have they become? It's horrible. They think a stick can tell them the future. How pitiful is the spiritual state of the people? But not only are there misplaced hopes, uh, there's misplaced worship too. Once the hearts of the people are consumed with the things of this world, the worship becomes corrupt. G.K. Chesterton commenting on that point, he says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. It's a really profound statement, actually. I'm not done. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. This is what they're doing. They stopped worshiping the true God. They don't love him. They're they're, they're dying for lack of knowledge, and they start worshiping whatever comes along. A stick, a walking staff. Who knows? Pick something. They're going to worship it. Why? Because we are worshiping creatures. We are made that way. Misplaced hope leads to misplaced worship. This is what has happened to the people. They have sold out to anything except the God of heaven. But, even in this, there is an embedded hope in the passage. It's very subtle, and it could probably be debated as to how I'm taking verse 16. The God of heaven still desires to shepherd his people. That much is certain because he wouldn't even bother with giving them the indictments and the corrections that he gives if he wasn't interested in shepherding them. He would just wipe them out and be done with it. As wayward as they are and as awful as their behavior, the God of heaven still desires to shepherd his people. Look at verse 16, note carefully, though, I'm sorry, like 
a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn, kind of like us. Sometimes we're pretty stubborn. I'm not going to tell the truth. I'm going to be obstinate. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to do what I want to do. And the God of heaven, with his incredible patience and love, shakes his head, scratches his head, wrings his hands. And then we have these words. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Notice the question mark. Now, I know it's not in the Hebrew. I recognize that. I understand that. So this is interpretive, of course. But it appears by the structure of the verse that it is in the interrogative. It's rhetorical because the answer is yes. It's not no. It's yes. I can still shepherd them. And I'm going to. He gives here in this verse the hope of Jehovah embedded around all the ugliness and misery of the indictments that God gives to the church, gives to the people. How does one present Christ in a passage such as this? Well, here it is. It's always the challenge of preaching to give, present Christ even these, in these very difficult, difficult chapters. Because I don't want you going home without hope, frankly. I don't want to go home without hope. Because I see myself in this chapter, a lot of me, in my misery and sin. There's got to be hope. Otherwise, I'm just ruined. The indictments of the people and the leaders are ugly and they're, they're blunt. The results of their behavior is terrible. Yet, in Christ, we have the solution. Taking the words of the indictment already given against the people, note... First, the shepherd of God's people. When we look at the words of 4.16, that is verse 16 of chapter 4, they are framed as a question. The answer resides in the good shepherd of the sheep who will indeed feed his people. Unlike the, the wicked priests of Hosea's day, the good shepherd of the sheep is going to feed his people that which they need to nourish them and to help them and to bring them out of their sin and misery and to reclaim them and redeem them to himself. He is not going to be like the wicked priests of Hosea day, but he is going to be the great high priest who is going to do this work. He shepherds us by convincing you and me of our sin and misery. Maybe not the sins in this passage, Maybe, maybe not specific things that, that are given here in chapter 4, but they're sins nonetheless. I mean, if, you, if you're not a sinner, then w why are you here and what do you need Jesus for? No, no, you are indeed, and you need him all the time. You need the Redeemer daily. The cross of Christ is always in front of you, not behind you. The good shepherd of the sheep convinces you of the sin. He brings you then, therefore, from this place of indictment, accusation of the God of heaven who rightly can accuse you of all sorts of sins and it wouldn't be wrong, but yet he lays it upon his son and that's where the punishment goes. Not to you. He feeds you, as I've mentioned already, with his word as the faithful priest, as the faithful prophet the shepherd of God's people who is the character, who has character beyond anything we can imagine. What is this character? Using, again, the indictments that are laid out for us in this chapter, just turning them over, the antithesis of those things that God used as negatives, now as positives, he is the faithful shepherd. You are faithless often. Sorry, I'm sorry, you are. So am I. But he is always faithful. He was faithful in his ministry to rescue sinners, to rescue you. He was faithful in his labors to, on, to only and always do the will of his Father. Nothing else. What about his love? We're not always very loving. And we're certainly not always very loving to the God of heaven. 
How often do our affections uh, waver and waffle and, and wane and are cold? They were never that way for him. We don't always love God and love others. Sometimes our affection for him are weak. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ loved his Father and delighted to do his will. What drove the Savior? He said himself that his food was to do the will of my Father. That is to say that that which drove him day after day was to do his Father's will. Why? Because of his great love for his Father. His faithfulness, his love, his knowledge. The Savior grew in knowledge. What? Yes. I know it sounds crazy. You think, well, that's weird. You know, he's God. How can he did? As the God man, he grew in wisdom, much like Samuel, the prophet. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He preached the words of his father, the words the father gave to him to preach. He lived the words of his father. No hypocrite here. Faithfully loving, doing what we cannot do. What these people in Hosea's day could not do and weren't doing. They needed a redeemer. They needed their God. We need a Redeemer. We need the God who rescues us, who brings to us the confidence then therefore that though we are weak and go astray, and though we are sometimes like these people of old, we have confidence that the answer to the question posed in verse 16 is yes, my Father, you can feed us we look to you and depend on the faithfulness, love, and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to us we cry, but to him we depend. On Christ alone we stand. In face of all these horrible accusations. All of it I cast, I look, and I say it is to him, not to me. And it's there then that I can be fed and I can be cleansed and the Father can truly make me into one of His own and perfect me as His child. God does discipline. That much is certain. Sometimes He does so in a way that is awfully painful and hard. But He does it because of that great love with which He loved you. He does it to secure you, not to lose you. The people of old were not going to be lost. He was going to claim them, redeem them, rescue them. Yes, they had wandered from the true God, but the true God was going to woo them through His loving discipline. And though it's hard sometimes, it is designed to perfect you. Yes, there may be consequences. David, they experienced them. This, the northern kingdom experienced the consequences of their sin uh, when Assyria came in in 722 B.C. and exiled them. Still, the call is to repent. Don't make matters worse by hardening your heart like the people of Hosea's day because they did not hear the word of the Lord. As such, they were severely disciplined, but still the Lord reclaimed the portion of those people for himself. Did you hear this evening? Were you listening? Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Respond to it. Don't despair it. Remember that even in this, it is all done to secure you in your heavenly home. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word again, humbled at the reality that you would love a people even as wayward as we have been so often. May you continue to be patient with us. May we hear you. May we respond to you. May we thank you. 
for the great work of Christ who loved you, who was faithful to you, who taught us of you in all that he did. May you feed your people indeed, the sheep of your pasture, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.